Yesterday, it was Layla Tassi's turn to celebrate. Today, it is Laura Johnston's turn. Her kids are now vaccinated. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura, as well as Lisa Garvin and our chief political mind, Seth Richardson. Laura, you feeling good? I am. My kids thought that I should buy them candy from CVS <laughs> to celebrate it because <laughs> um, you have to stay in the store for 15 minutes afterwards. So there was a lot of browsing. But um, no, I'm, I feel a lot of relief. And I think this is a really big moment. And the kids didn't cry. They were brave. So uh, I keep seeing all these people on Facebook doing it. And the kids are the kids are taking it really well. So it's, it's a good day. Wait, so Layla did give her kids ice cream with sprinkles. <laughs> did you not provide... I went home and I got out the Halloween stash and I was like, here's your two Sour Patch kids. But who buys candy oh, wow. after Halloween? Wow. But wow. they'd already earned that candy. Knocking on yeah. doors. Mean mom. Yeah. Mean mom. That's, a, that's like, like, it's like stealing tips or something. I'm, I'm 32 and got a booster shot last night and bought myself ice cream. Come on, Laura. Okay. Seth Richardson is okay, in a celebratory mode. Still my candy that was not collected. It was the stuff we bought. But okay, I guess I'm going to Oh my kids blizzards this weekend yeah you better okay let's begin how could the ohio supreme court fill the pockets of ohioans who are unemployed this year with extra cash in those pockets lisa there's a good fight going on and there's an interesting wrinkle involving our favorite supreme oh, court yes. justice pat dewine oh, so yes. first let's start with what's going on and then we'll get to our disgraceful supreme court justice pat dewine Absolutely. Yeah, the Supreme Court, the Ohio Supreme Court is taking up a lawsuit that was filed by three unemployed Ohioans. Uh, this is after an appeals court found that the state law actually prohibits Governor DeWine from stopping the $300 a week pandemic payments. And he stopped those on June 26th, well before they ran out in September. Uh, the law apparently says that the uh, ODJFS, the Ohio Department of Jobs and Family Services, shall secure, quote, all available advantages under the Social Security Act, and there are other laws that also govern federal benefits. Uh, the plaintiffs argue that the money should be paid as available. They are the, These plaintiffs are being represented by former Ohio Attorney General Mark Dan, and he's hoping this case will be ex expedited because he says, you know, these people really need that money. So if it, if this gets ruled on in their favor, this means about $3,000 $3, a pop for these people, for hundreds of thousands of Ohioans, not just the plaintiffs themselves. But yeah, it was a four to two ruling. So wait. Go ahead. But, but, but hold on a minute. We should point out that the decision by Mike DeWine, championed by Lieutenant Governor John Houston, to turn down this free money from the federal government was about the meanest thing they did through the pandemic. They cut people off of cash the federal government would have given them freely to help them get through the pandemic yeah. under this twisted logic that if we squeeze them, they'll go back and take the paltry right. wages that all these people who are clamoring for workers pay. Didn't work. The people didn't go back to those jobs. Those jobs are still begging. And yet all of these people who could have been helped to get through the pandemic were deprived of the money because of a kind of venal decision by our current leaders. Yeah, so no, let's talk about the governor's son. Yes. The governor's son recused himself from this case. Yes. What's going on there? 
Well, he said he recused himself because of his father. It was a four to two ruling. Uh, he was one of the four that agreed and or, or recused himself rather. So yeah, this is quite a turn of events from when he refused to recuse himself in the redistricting situation. So yeah, maybe he had a so, change of heart or, or I don't know. Let, 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 well, actually, I think he recused himself from this one first, but maybe not. The, 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 this is interesting. I, I'm trying to understand the wacky logic of Pat DeWine. In the gerrymandering case, his father is a key witness, is on the record multiple times saying, oh, no, these, these maps will never stand, even though he voted for them, making him a prime witness in this case. He's been deposed. The, the, the justice, the son, actually had to participate in the ruling to make him be deposed. And DeWine sees no conflict of interest there, even though everybody else in the legal universe does. There's not a single person we've heard from that says they think he's right. And then in this case, he, he recuses himself. What is the splitting of the hair here? I just don't get it. I just wonder, you know, because Cleveland.com and the Plain Dealer and this podcast has been, you know, just vilifying him for, you know, his refusal to recuse in the redistricting case. So I wonder if maybe that he thought maybe, hmm, you know, and then we looked around for similar situations and couldn't find any across the U.S. So he kind of looks like a he looks bad and maybe he's thinking, hmm, maybe I am not doing the right thing. Yeah, no, no judge in history that we can find anywhere had the audacity and bad judgment to stay on a case involving their own father. There's reason we have these rules. It must be killing the Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. I mean, she really cares about the reputation of the court and its upstanding nature. And here she's got this guy just disgracing it by his incredible poor judgment. There's nothing she can do about it. But he did recuse himself in the unemployment case. Fascinating. We'll have to see if the people get that money. That'll be a big retroactive payment. Be nice if they could get it done before Christmas so that they right. have an end of the year bonus. Right. That's three thousand dollars because they missed 10 weeks of of that money so at, at 300 you know bucks a week so yeah that's a nice chunk of change and it would be a major injection into the ohio economy this also hurt a lot of small businesses where the money would have been spent all courtesy of our current administration you are listening to today in ohio what do we learn of the experiences of essential workers in the pandemic from a new anthology from Literary Cleveland? Laura, this is a, a very nice story by Ann Nikoloff about what people are having to say about what they've seen. Not the most uplifting reading, though. No, it's really not. There, But there are some incredible stories written by people who bore the brunt of working through this lockdown. It's a real window into people's experiences, and it helped the writers process their trauma as well. Plus, they got paid to write these and to go to the workshops through Literary Cleveland. So it seems like a win all around. There are 18 essays and two collaborative pieces in this anthology that's online. It's called Voices from the Edge. It includes doctors, grocery store workers, nurses, an Amazon employee, a social worker, and a caregiver. They're all sharing their perspectives from their personal and professional lives. And it, like it's it's really moving. There's a doctor from Shaker Heights who compared his experience to um, with severe cases of COVID to a game of snakes and ladders where you can climb up the ladder and then you hit some kind of mis not a mistake but just the next roadblock and you get sliding back down and and how 
debilitating that can be and how it just your anguish and it really gives you a window into people's minds and their lives how do people get a copy is this something you can get on amazon is it print on demand or are people kind of out of luck do they have to go to a local library or something no it's all online actually at literary cleveland and it's really i, I think you can read it all right there all right ch check out the story on cleveland.com you're listening to today in ohio how might Ohio legislators deprive cash-strapped school districts of a key tool to preserve the flow of property taxes from commercial properties into their coffers? And how could that harm people who own houses in the state? Seth, the legislator seems intent on taking away one of the key checks and balances from commercial property owners who want to scam the system and reduce their values. Well, there's an amendment before the Senate Ways and Means Committee that would essentially halt school districts from going before the uh, county boards of revision, which deal with property taxes, uh, property tax assessments, rather. And uh, it, it would essentially block them from going and challenging uh, any you know business or anybody else who you know files a challenge to their property tax so the way it kind of works right now is a you know a property owner let's you know we're talking about businesses here by and large um, because that seems to be who this is more catered to um, you know can go and say hey this uh, you know for example the Strongsville you know the South Park Mall could say they have a property valuation of 124 million dollars and they seek they're seeking to get a reduction in valuation to 58 million that's a pretty big chunk of property tax change that would just you know go away uh 3.7 million dollars to you know local governments um right now school boards can go and they can challenge that and say no 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 this is what it is worth but if this amendment goes through the school boards would your school districts would essentially be completely shut off from doing that the the thing is that the school districts don't do this often but every once in a while a, somebody that owns commercial property goes in to seek a big drop and that it, that's tough right that that's like wait wait we, we need to keep the taxes flowing and so it's a good check the school district doesn't go in with phony nonsense they go in and say hey here's the actual proof of why this is more valuable than they claim so we're taking out one of the checks and balances the sad thing is is that when people pass a school tax they're adopting an amount you know it's it's pretty much a dollar amount so if a million dollar property goes to zero the taxes on that property then get spread over all the other taxpayers, including residential homeowners, right? Yeah, that's the that's kind of the big part of the pushback is that, you know, if these millions of dollars do go away from some of the bigger projects, that is essentially going to get spread out to actual homeowners in the areas wherever this is, in whatever district. So um, you would see you know, kind of regular everyday people really bearing the brunt of some of these losses as districts try to make up for that lost revenue. I, I don't understand why they would do this. And we know from HB6 that the legislature can be for sale. Is it possible there is somebody paying these guys off somehow to get this done? Why would you penalize taxpaying homeowners throughout the state by giving this break to commercial property owners? It makes no sense. And when things make no sense, you start to wonder as if this corruptible legislature is at it again. We, we certainly are in an environment. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of that. But I think that, you know, the question over why, you know, what is the point of this amendment? Why uh, is shared kind of across party lines, right? You have uh, State Senator Matt Dolan and State Senator Sandra Williams, Dolan being a Republican, Williams being a, a Democrat, both kind of being like, hey, what's what's going on with this thing it's um 
you know, Der- uh, State Representative Derek Marin is sponsoring the original bill, which would, um, you know, kind of determine whether or not school districts can hire attorneys for this kind of cases. But they're still trying to kind of figure out who is behind this amendment and what's going on there. Yeah, this is bogus. There's something wrong here. Somebody is undermining a legitimate system of checks and balances, and we'll have to see if we can flesh out where the rot is coming from. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are Republican members of Congress from Ohio trying to preserve a U.S.-Canada oil pipeline with a long history of leaks, a pipeline that the Michigan governor wants to shut down? Lisa, this pipeline runs through Michigan. It doesn't run through Ohio, and it's so scary to the folks up there that they want to close it down. Why are Ohio Republicans trying to preserve it? Well, and actually, I was sitting eating lunch yesterday at Fisher's Tavern at the bar, and and they had Fox News on, and they were talking about they were already spinning the propaganda machine. But there were uh, three uh, Republicans, uh, Troy Balderson of Zanesville, Bob Lotta of Bowling Green, and Bill Johnson of Marietta. They wrote a letter to President Biden last month warning him not to shut down the Enbridge 5 pipeline. It said it would cost thousands of jobs, increase oil and gas prices, and worsen supply issues. The Enbridge 5 pipeline runs from a refinery in Sarnia, Ontario, which is Laura Johnston's hometown, by the way. It goes through Wisconsin and Michigan. Has It's 65 years old. It had a long history of leaks and spills. It does go uh, under the Straits of Mackinac, which is a waterway that connects lakes Huron and Michigan. And of course, that would have downstream effects, you know, to Lake Erie as well. But yeah, the, the, you know, they're saying, and also Attorney General David Yost last year, He filed a legal brief in the Michigan Enbridge suit claiming that two Toledo refineries with a thousand workers would be negatively impacted if this pipeline were to be shut down. Um, There is, uh, this is all spurred by the White House's asking the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to work on an environmental impact statement, which should be coming out directly. And they're considering decommissioning the Enbridge 5 pipeline and then replacing it one with one that would be a hundred foot feet below the lake bed in the Straits of Mackinac. So yeah, this is just good old Republican talking point fodder, jobs lost, oil and gas prices rising. So that's why they're getting excited about it. But, you know, it's it's the the lakes, the Great Lakes is a huge source of fresh water. We don't want to impact that at all. Well, you wonder, the, the Michigan governor is a Democrat that's often in the crosshairs of Republicans. I wish we could get to the bottom of the debate, but I don't think it's it's a debate. It sounds like it's political diversion instead of an actual debate about what's going on. Although if they replace it, then I would think everybody would be happy. Laura Johnson, it's Mackinac, right? Straits of Mackinac. It is the Straits of Mackinac. And this story, I I had no idea about this pipeline. And like, I, my dad used to work in Chemical Valley where this ends up. So the Canadian government did put out a statement saying, we think it's fine. It's totally safe. (laughs) So (laughs) just one more thing for the Canadian and American governments to disagree on. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's look ahead to the 2022 election season, which started in earnest the day after Election Day last week. When do we expect things to heat up to a boil in the Senate and governor's races? Seth, you put together a thoughtful piece going through all of the election nonsense we can expect in the next year and the, next, and the primaries in May. What were the highlights of what you reported? Yeah, really no uh, no time off for Northeast Ohioans when it comes to elections. Um, when, you know, you talk about 
you have midterm election and, and this is like 2021 was really an odd year in a lot of ways for Northeast Ohioans because you had not only the mayor race, which I think everybody kind of knew was going to be pretty big, but we also had that highly contentious special election for the 11th congressional district. And all of this came very shortly after the presidential election, which, you know, was just kind of a nationwide, you know, it's really divisive, right? We've, we've kind of seen the fallout from that. And uh, we're going to, we're basically straight into these midterms. You know, when you talk about how long until we see races reach a boil, you know, I think some of them kind of already have, right? When you look at the Senate race, particularly on the Republican side, it's kind of been it that way for quite some time now that there are, you know, six really big candidates in that race, not to mention some others. I don't expect that that is going to slow down anytime soon, um, you know, especially with a lot of the ugliness we've seen on the Republican side and even on the Democratic side with, you know, Tim Ryan, uh, you know, the Youngstown area representative and Morgan Harper, the former um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau attorney. That's starting to get a little contentious between some of the more like liberal elements of the party who are looking for a more, you know, what they feel would be a more open primary of sorts since a lot of the support is coalesced behind Ryan. But so I think you're going to start seeing that heat up here pretty soon. You know, the governor's race is a, a big question in terms of how much it actually will heat up on the Democratic side. You've seen, uh, you know, Nan Whaley and John Cranley going around the state trying to get support. On the Republican side, you know, Mike DeWine is running for re-election, and, you know, there are two candidates who are running against him in the primary. Uh, Joe Blystone, who's a, you know, farmer from central Ohio, a rancher from central Ohio, rather, who has a little bit of support on the activist base, but probably, you know, I don't think it's anything near enough to, like, topple DeWine necessarily. And then the kind of the big question mark is former Representative Jim Renacy, who ran for Senate in 2018. And I think a lot of people really thought that he was going to kind of come in and pose a really big challenge to Mike DeWine. But man, I never did. I mean, he I, can't raise was, money and yeah, he's kind I was, of a cartoon character. I, I just don't see that. I, I was a little skeptical of it myself just because we we saw, you know, how poorly a campaign he ran in 2018, right, against Sherrod Brown, who was, you know, Sherrod Brown ended up being the only Democrat who won in a Republican year. Well, and look, I mean, you see his communications. It's just nonsense. I mean, he, he peddles the, the critical race theory nonsense. And every communication he has is basically peddling fiction. And the only people he sends it to are the media who are ignoring him because he, he has no credibility. I do think, though, there is an interesting dynamic. Mike DeWine trying to fend off the run from the right is doing things that appeal to the fringe right, cutting the $300 unemployment from people that really needed it and so many other things the the school board asking the resignation of school board members who for their only reason being that they stood behind a resolution acknowledging racism had existed in ohio oh my gosh um the democrat that runs against him will be able to bring all that stuff back mike dewine's the guy that deprived you know x thousands of people of an extra three hundred dollars a week in unemployment that was free from the federal government because of he was supporting employers instead of the people he's supposed to serve I, you know one after another they're going to be able to use this stuff against him everybody has been saying they think he's invulnerable next year i don't think he's invulnerable i think he's vulnerable 
I think he could be vulnerable. I think he's certainly favored just given the bend of Ohio and how, you know, uh, races have gone over here in the past decade. But yeah, you bring up a good point where, you know, one of the appeals of DeWine, especially in 2018, where you didn't see, you know, near that blue wave that you saw everywhere else. Part of it is just because of the kind of state that Ohio is, but the other part is because I think a lot of people, you know, specifically suburban voters who are maybe a little more moderate, you know, saw DeWine as kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a nicer Republican, uh, to, to use a term, to, can't think of a better term right now, but he's he's kind of been around for a while. He's a known commodity. You know, I've heard, I heard somebody, I can't remember who it was, describe him as like comfort food for the Republican Party, right? And now that you've seen such a rightward shift in, you know, the Republican Party, there there is that question of, okay, you know, there there is a significant portion of the party that is upset with him. Um, you know, do they undervote him in the general election if he gets there? And or does DeWine go, you know, further to the right to try to appeal to that base I, but, and lose some of the suburbs in that, but I'm, in that what process? What I'm talking about is the way that an effective campaign can attack him. I, I think, that, you know, the first energy thing done right could really besmirch his character. I think that $300 unemployment thing is going to resonate with a whole lot of people who didn't get the money. I think his son refusing to pull off of the gerrymandering case stains the DeWine name in a way that could harm him. And look, the Democrats in this state are it's the weakest the organization's ever been. But if they put together a smart campaign, Cranley came right out of the chute last week saying, I would completely erase the PUCO and change how we do it. This is a sin, what's happened under their watch. That kind of stuff, if, if it happened in a real campaign, could make this very interesting. And I don't think it's a slam dunk for him. Good stuff. Check out Seth's story on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How can people in Northeast Ohio give lift to others in the region by writing a simple note on cleveland.com? Laura, we're trying to give people a a nice moment of pause on Thanksgiving Day so that we can feel good about the things in our lives that are worth celebrating after 20 months of living through this life-altering pandemic. Absolutely. This is Thanksgiving. This is our national holiday to celebrate and give gratitude for what we have and to just acknowledge the good things in our lives. So to take a break from the partisanship, from the divide, from the anxiety, and consider what is best in our lives. And so we're asking readers of cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer and listeners of this podcast to send us what they're grateful for. We have a character limit of 640, which is a good chunk of a paragraph, but you can't go on for pages. And we'd like to publish these online and in the Plain Dealer on Thanksgiving Day so that we can all feel some warmth from each other about the wonderful things in our lives. And we've already gotten a couple of dozen responses from people who are grateful for for Zoom, actually, that they've actually reconnected with people during the pandemic that they never saw in their life before, or just the internet or grandchildren, which is all, none of the responsibilities of raising children, yet all of the benefits, which is, it, it's nice to, to start seeing these roll in. So how do people do it? So we are we have an online form where people can submit, and I can't just give you the URL because it's wonky and long, but we are ha- keeping this parked on our website on cleveland.com all week long so that you can find it. Uh, we'll, we'll run it in the Plain Dealer with a URL on Uh, today's paper. We'll have it again this weekend. And if you follow our social channels, you'll see it pop up. So you can just click on that and go right to the form. I thought we had a tiny URL, like grateful2021, tinyurl.com 
2021 grateful or grateful 2021, right? That sounds right. I don't have that at the, my fingertips. It's probably in print, but I will find that and we can get it back on the, the podcast. All right. Before we wrap up, you're listening to Today in Ohio. Which age group is getting the most coronavirus vaccine booster shots in Ohio? Lisa, we keep talking about the little children of the people in this podcast, but it turns out it's not little children that are lining up at Walgreens and CVS and elsewhere to get the shots. Who are they? No, it's the old folks. People 65 and over are the ones who are really flocking to pharmacies and doctor's offices to get their booster shots. The top age group was 65 to 69-year-olds. Uh, 174,246 have gotten their booster shots. And this is out of a 65 to 69 population in, in Ohio of 666,000. The second group is 70 to 74. And then the third group is the 80 plus. Now at the bottom, of the ranks. Of course, zero to 19, you know, of course, we don't know whether this, obviously, kids five to 11 are just now getting their first round of shots, but only, you know, from zero to 19, only 3,100 people of a population of 2.5 million has gotten these. And then 30 to 39, lock, not looking real great, only 58,141 out of a population of 1.47 million people. And then 20 to 29 age group, 28,000. 826 have gotten their booster, and that's out of a population in that demographic of 1.5 million. Overall, in Ohio, those who have gotten their booster shots is about 968,880, and that's out of a total state population of 11.8 million. When you break it down by county, Cuyahoga County is number one. 119,488 got their booster, followed closely by Summit and Lorain counties. So yeah, the old folks are, we're getting it done, but yeah, we got to get those like 30-year-olds and 20-year-olds and 40-year-olds to well, get there. Except the only way they can get it right now is if they have oh, that's right, a condition. Yeah. There is a proposal by Pfizer to allow anybody 18 and older to get it. I think we'll see that age range spreading rapidly. Uh, I mean, I'm not of the age where I qualify, but I have a condition that qualifies. And Seth, I, you are the same. And, you know, I expect that you're seeing more people trying to get in to get it. But once they approve it for people younger... It'll be interesting to see how those ranges change. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How did polling get another black eye on Election Day this month? And how is the thinking changing about horse race polls? Seth, you don't often see a well-known pollster write the kind of op-ed that the New Jersey guy wrote, basically apologizing for getting it so wrong in the governor's race there. You started this conversation in Cleveland by saying we should stop reporting horse race polls as news. Man, things have happened quickly since we first started talking about that. Yeah, and I mean, Patrick Murray, who runs the Monmouth University poll, he's a pretty, you know, well-respected guy in kind of the polling community, right? Monmouth, Monmouth University's well-known pollster uh, has been for a long time, but, you know, the rate, he, he just called the race so, and I mean, we should point out that Monmouth University is in New Jersey, so that's like the home state. You feel like you should be able to pull that state better, and they were just, you know, way off on it as far as the uh, the horse race number goes and you know yeah i think it's you know it's a conversation that we've been having kind of you know both in public and in private over um whether we as a news organization kind of lend the the credence of a standalone story to a horse race poll like is that uh, alone enough 
of a story that, hey, this poll came out and here's what this poll says because we've seen such error in these polls over the past four or five years. Well, what's interesting to me is what he wrote. He said, for those of you who are mad because you think my poll kept people home because they thought it was over, or for those of you who came out to vote because the numbers were so wrong, let me have it. I have it coming. That matches up pretty closely. I asked people in my letter from the editor column that gets emailed to like 50,000 people what they thought. And I got an overwhelming response in which 80% of them said, stop reporting hearse race polls for all sorts of reasons. And one of them was that, that when you report those polls that are so far off, it alters how people vote. And that does a disservice to everybody. We didn't have polls really in the Cleveland mayor's race and we didn't lose anything. You know, we, we, nobody saw the margin that we ended up seeing, but, but we ended up having a, a pretty big uh, margin, and I don't think the voters suffered as a result. So uh, fascinating the, what, what they wrote. Are you hearing things in other political circles about it? You know, I think there's kind of a, a sort of mixed response to it, right, because polling is so embedded in politics. And it's, you know, this again, this isn't to say that, like, polling is completely useless or anything like that, right? Because what what is, I think, more important about polling, and I've talked with pollsters about this, what is more important about polling is how candidates use it or how, you know, parties use it or how it is used, whether than, rather than necessarily just reporting what the numbers are themselves, this, you know, sort of binary choice that you have on election day. And, you know, like you said, yeah, when a news organization puts kind of their oomph behind a horse race poll, it does lend some credence and create some kind of expectation, I think, with the readership where they see that and think, oh, this this is what it is. Uh, so that that's sort of what I've wanted to explore. And, I, you know, going back to Patrick Murray and Monmouth University, you know, he points out that some very venerable pollsters have kind of stopped doing, you know, public horse race polling, right? Gallup and Pew, probably two of the largest, most well-known pollsters in the country. So, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's a discussion that needs to be had in the journalism community. Yeah, it's pretty clear. We'll stop doing them as news stories. Whether we include them in other reporting, we're going to have to resolve that fairly soon. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Laura Johnston, did you get that link for people that want to help people get lift on Thanksgiving by telling us something that is meaningful in their lives? Yes. So it is tinyurl.com slash pdthankful. And that will get you there. So it's okay. PD, as in plain dealer, thankful. Look, you have it in your power to make people feel good for a moment on Thanksgiving. If you have somebody in your life, whether it's a person, a pet, or some event, a nurse or a doctor who made you feel especially good this year, please write, write a few sentences. It'll uh, provide a moment of good spirits on a day of thanks. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. And thanks to anybody that offers us something for our Thanksgiving project. We'll be back tomorrow to discuss a whole bunch of other news stories. 